Hello, heroes. I'm Hannah Schaefer. And I'm Evan Rowland. Welcome to Design Doc. The first colonists, our grandparents and great-grandparents, died in space. They knew they'd never survive a century of travel. They left their world for the sake of their children. For us. We were born in space, and we finished the journey they began. But when we finally landed on the planet that was promised to us, we saw that we were not the first. During a hundred years in the close quarters of our ship, we became a different kind of people. We had no time to ourselves, no personal space, and so we learned to ask for what we needed. And whenever the engines overheated, we learned to settle differences quickly in the name of our future home. We learned new ways to love and made a new language to express them. We went from warriors to empaths. Then we arrived and met the Azkath, the aliens who had already claimed this world. We offered closeness, but they demanded distance. We offered words, but they demanded silence. It seemed impossible to reach any agreement with them, but we resolved to try. We reflect back on this history now, standing before the Azkath colony, weapons drawn to our chests, waiting for the ambush. We're here on a diplomatic mission, we tell them, and we tell ourselves. But our weapons are burning hot in their holsters. How quickly we've become warriors again. So that bit of intro audio was from our first attempt at a playtest campaign game of Questlandia, which we played last year with our friends Emily Care Boss and Rebecca Slit, who are both game designers, so you might recognize their names. They're part of our regular Monster Hearts group, and they were nice enough to take a chance on this weird, like, n no game design done to it attempt at a campaign game. So, Evan, you ended up GMing that game, uh, which was, you know, different from the one-shot version of Questlandia that we carried a lot over. What, what did you think of that game? I thought that game proved that Questlandia works well as a campaign game. Like, we had a... We played it for... A few months, we had a number of sessions and we made maps, we like developed a whole slang, we learned about all the colonies on this planet and their culture and what kind of food they ate and the layout and everything about that. It was just, it just kept being fun to learn more details about the world. And even now, after our campaign reached a conclusion, I'm still excited about the world. I'd still love to learn more about it. So I think that the world had a lot of longevity, and a lot of the basic Questlandia rules are what got it that way. Yeah, I really enjoyed that game. Um, it was a really memorable story. I think it's, you know, it it's, stands as one of the most memorable role-playing games I've played. But I did get a little bit tricked by the chemistry of our group, because I remember coming away being like, oh my gosh, Evan, Questlandia redesign is done. Like we just, we, it already happened. We just did it. And you were like, actually. Yeah. We, I, we just have some really, really, really good role-playing friends. Really, really good patient friends. So 
Uh, there's a lot of work left to do. But I think that was really helpful to kind of clarify some of what we feel like is working from the, the original. Yeah, definitely. So in that first playtest of Questlandia 2, we carried over a whole bunch of the rules, almost all of the world generation rules, the same kind of troubles that beset your kingdom, just at a slower pace. And that worked pretty well just on its face, just making those few changes. Of course, I was playing a GM. I was, you know, running that game, and that's a big difference. So this week, we picked up the original Questlandia to look over the world-building rules and, you know, just get a firm sense of where we're coming from. Hannah, do you want to start by describing how world-building starts? Sure. So Questlandia original. <laughs> Questlandia 1. Old school. Old, old Questlandia relies a lot on these oracles or these tables for helping you generate world building so uh, or to generate your kingdom. So the very first thing you do in the game is you roll a six-sided die to establish your kingdom's ambition and that maps to this list and based on that roll you'll get one of the following. Your kingdom could care about conquest and domination. That's one. Uh, re religion and philosophy, culture and prestige, technology and science, industry and trade, or regulation and control. So you'll just start off by rolling, and the first thing that you'll get is like, I, you know, we rolled a four. Our kingdom uh, is based around technology and science. The book actually says, you know, the first thing we'll do is get a sense of place. I know. I read that line <laughs> and I was like, that makes no sense. Yeah, this doesn't give you a sense of place. <laughs> it's a sense of ambition. I know. I I mean, this is why we have an editor now. Like, Josh would have been like, that makes no sense. Yeah, but both of us would have been like that too at this point. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's. <laughs> I mean, I think that probably we'll be doing, you know, more episodes as we keep developing the game about like what it's like to have made a number of role-playing games and get better at clarifying language. But I'm glad that stuck out to you because I read that today and I cringed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little tough to look back. <laughs> what does that mean? So once you have your kingdom's ambition, you draw some cards from a standard deck of playing cards and those give you your kingdom's troubles. The deal is that there's four troubles, and each one corresponds to one of the suits of the cards. So clubs is civil unrest or uh, revolution. Hearts is sickness. Diamonds is wealth. And spades is war or some kind of external threat. So the more cards you get of a certain suit, the worse that problem is for your kingdom. We wrote it out that, you know, three is very bad. That's when things are affecting everybody's lives. And six is enough to lead to the downfall of a kingdom. You know, I when I was reading that, I just uh, I just did the math. <laughs> oh, did you that, do the probability of drawing six? Yeah, I was just curious. <laughs> so What's the probability? It, in about one in 10,000 games, somebody will just draw six of the same suit. <laughs> Be like, I guess we're done. Yeah, this their kingdom is, is immediately collapsing. <laughs> if that's uh, happened to you, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> so after you've learned a little bit about your kingdom's troubles and say, you know, maybe you drew uh, 
three hearts. And so you know that it's like you do three hearts, two clubs, and one spades. So you're like, okay, we know that our kingdom has this active health problem, like a health crisis. It's leading to or somehow related to a civil unrest. And uh, we are also at some point going to be escalating into a conflict with an external threat. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe not during the game, but likely that some external war will escalate. So the next thing that you would do based on knowing your kingdom's ambition and having a sense of your kingdom's troubles is coming up with your kingdom's features and norms. And this part was really interesting because we actually don't give a lot of guidance, but it, I think, tends to work. I I mean... In our games, <laughs> it works. Maybe not in other surprisingly people's. Surprisingly well, know. but yeah. It's, it's always a little hard to know exactly what's going on out there in the world. So, I mean, and we do give suggestions where, like, features include your kingdom's geography, topography, architecture, and climate, and norms are the laws and customs that define your society. And then, you know, we give a few examples of what that might look like. Like, there's a lot of mountains. Everybody wears cat ears. Mm -hmm. In our society that has a, a technological ambition and has a sickness problem, we might say, okay, everybody has some implant in their brain and they've been misfiring lately. And, you know, those misfirings are causing some civil unrest. Right. <laughs> because we're all fighting and we can't control ourselves. And both sides say the other side is the one with the misfiring implants. <laughs> oh, you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, I think that maybe one of the reasons that we left this features and norm section a little slim is that the the bit you've already done between the kingdom ambition and the troubles already kind of gets your mind worrying. Yeah. It's surprisingly bare bones and it works surprisingly well. We just say, do this for a while, then stop. And move on to making your kingdom's language. And the rules for that are coming up with a bunch of syllables like ta or ru or ba. <laughs> Gak. Thumb. See, we just did it. Yeah. So you do that a bunch and then you can construct words from those for, you know, naming landmarks and important people and the kingdom itself, which always ends up with a name like thumbata. Thumbergak. <laughs> and I think we we took that idea from Joshua A.C. Newman, our friend uh, and fellow game designer who made shock social science fiction and human contact. And his games to, tend to be, you know, really heavy on the sci-fi. And I know that I talked to somebody this past week at Metatopia who was like, I played Questlandia and I liked it, but that kingdom name creation just really didn't match with our game. And I think that people will be saying a lot of stuff like that to us. Yeah, that's something that was sort of addressed in Noirlandia, where Noirlandia gave three different ways to come up with a language to try to accommodate different feelings. But back then we had just one. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that Noirlandia did that I really like, and I think will definitely be, huh, I should not ever say definitely, I hope and aspire to put in Q2. It Instead of just coming up with this, a language, it talked about the idea of like, if you want to root your society in a more, like in a language that we already know mm -hmm. in your own culture's language, focus on coming up with like slang then based on the experience of 
your people. So we ended up doing this in this game that we played with Becky and Emily, where we were in Kingdom Promise, this game that we introed at the beginning of the episode. We came up with some really cool words that our societies, you know, where our society's language had evolved based on this time that they spent together in close quarters for like a hundred years on a ship. These are people who struggled to find time alone or even just like with one other person on the cramped quarters of the ship. So they had slang of enging with somebody to get them alone and have a private chat because you'd have to go down to the engine room of the ship and talk under the din of the engine's hum to be able to get any kind of privacy. Uh, there was fizzing, which is which was this idea that developed in that like you had this society where everybody's so close all the time and it acknowledges that sometimes you just have to get emotions out physically. And they developed like this weird sort of boffing sport for like fighting your friend or lover while you are getting your feelings out at them. So you'd go to the gym. And you would just like fizz it out. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, a, yeah. A whole set more of these, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're good. Maybe we can post them somewhere because I think that they're really fun. They did a lot to make the world feel like it had a more, it had some more depth to it. So you make the language, you name your kingdom, and then comes ownership. Yeah, ownership is weird. I mean, I, I, I still like ownership. I don't know how well it works in Questlandia, but it's basically the idea. It came for me from this idea that I tend to be a little bit more quiet in role playing games. I can be kind of a jerk. Where like if I see a game going a certain way socially, I will contribute to it getting worse by becoming more and more quiet, seeing if the GM will notice that I've checked out. It's, ter <laughs> it's terribly manipulative. I'm trying to work on it. Um, but I'm like, oh, everybody's talking over me. When are people going to notice that I've been quiet for 10 minutes? So ownership was this way to like throw somebody like me a bone where after we come up with these different world elements, like Evan, you brought up these neuro implants maybe mm -hmm. in the society that we're just inventing that then ownership of those would pass to me as the cranky quiet player and if a question comes up about them i am the first one to answer and i have the final say so the responsibilities of describing the world are distributed fairly evenly between the players as they each get ownership of the different major concepts and as the game keeps on being played New concepts that come up get distributed, an owner is decided, they become the authority on that matter. And ownership is really kind of formalized in the beginning because you've made these, you have these troubles, you have these features and norms, you pass out ownership, and the idea is that it continues, like you said, as the game progresses. The Whether that actually continues or people forget about it, I don't know. It's something that seemed a little spotty to me in past playthroughs, and I think that's partly because the games are so short. In the one-shot model, especially at like a convention, it's hard to let your group get distracted discussing the details of how the farms are irrigated. Yeah, when you have only three hours. Right. So that part tends to get steamrolled. It's one of the first parts that gets cut. But it'll be much more important in a campaign game. And we saw it really work well in this one campaign game that we played. I mean, I have these notes. Like, we had, you know, an entire 45 minutes where we talked about the types of wine that we drink based on living in this terraformed, dry planet. Like, what types of, what types of illegal substances and 
mind-altering substances do we have access to? We talked about it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so in the original Questlandia, after you've given everybody their first bit of ownership, it just says, now talk about stuff. <laughs> Tie it all together. Mm -hmm. Make it make sense as a story. Yeah. So when we were playtesting the original, we noticed that this is just something that happened. People would be excited about the new stuff that came up. They'd want to talk about how the brain implants were misfiring and whether you could see a spark or not and how that influenced the Civil War and, you know, what new technology was being made for it, all of this. So we said, okay, do it. Do it now and do it for five minutes. And I mean, I think this is one example of in role-playing games, it can be hard to know how much needs to be a rule. Because there are these things that people tend to do naturally, and you have to make decisions about, like, do we say, do is there going to be a group, and how many groups are going to be like, can we keep talking about this, or are we supposed to immediately move on after coming up with our features and norms? In Questlandia, I feel like we were really saying, yes, it's okay, but keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> Which we know is a problem from Questlandia 1. I mean, one shot. One Shot Podcast tried to run a game of Questlandia, and I think that the kingdom building just took them forever, and then it fizzled out, and the episode never ended up airing. Yeah. And there were maybe more issues with the game, but mm -hmm. I think that was one of them. And it's totally valid, because we made this robust set of world building tools, and then we're like, you know, you have groups that are really excited, and suddenly three hours have passed, and like they don't want to play the rest of the game. Yeah, that's actually been a hurdle in almost every Questlandia game the shift from the world-building phase to the playing-the-game phase. So after all that, you've talked about it, you've figured out the story, you have all that info, then the game says... I know it doesn't. I think the map-making yeah, comes after I the know. characters. Yeah, there's like... It goes on for a really long time. Because, you, yeah, you do this world, you establish the features and norms, you assign ownership, then you make characters, then you give your characters goals, then you give them obstacles. We'll talk about that in another episode. It goes on forever and ever. Then... I think we unlocked it as part of a stretch goal or something where yep. we were like, then you make a map. And by then everybody's like, no, we don't want to keep playing this game. I, well, I, it I like always it. seems that way when describing the rules, but when you're actually playing through it, I, well, no, you're right. The map making part does tend to get to a point where people are like, okay, now we're making a map. And I think that the map making is genuinely fun. It's just like, this should not have been a one-shot game. But I think it's okay that it was, because I don't think that we could have easily made a campaign game. I think we had to, like, get it out. Yeah, you're at where you're at, bro. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no so, shame. Yeah, so it's just like you've now been, like, playing with your friends for two hours, and maybe you don't think that you've actually been playing because maybe you don't consider world-building part of play. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about this. And then it's like, oh, yeah, now you've been going for two hours. Now it's time to make a map. And you just feel like a little bit mentally exhausted. Mm -hmm. but, but the it's maps cool. are cool. Yeah, yeah. they're really cool. <laughs> because I think there's a thing where, like, after you make the map, you, like, mark which areas are most impacted by the escalating troubles. Yeah. And that's really cool. It is. And then there are rules for how that, I, I actually forgot about this, then, like, as you play, when you continue to escalate troubles, your map is changed yeah the first trouble that hits a location changes that location and impacts it in some way so the petting zoo gets closed down 
No. And then, and then the second time it gets impacted, you transform it into a completely new location. So the petting zoo becomes the training ground for military steeds. <laughs> <laughs> it's been consistently one of my favorite parts of the game is this like impacted, transformed, impacted, transformed. I don't know. Something about it has felt really poignant. It makes the troubles feel more grounded rather than just being like, oh, it went from four to five. Yeah. It's like it went from the petting zoo to the military steed training ground. Mm -hmm. That's something you can... You can hold on to. You can, you can count keep that on it. in your noggin. <laughs> so reading back through the book, Evan, were there things that surprised you about the rules that we wrote? Were you like, oh, I wrote that? Huh. One thing that that caught me a little off guard rereading the rules closely was how strong the tone was against dominant players, the kind of players who would would talk on and on and like control a table. There's a lot of limitations and talking about forcing everybody else to get a say forcing <laughs> is that all me no 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 it's absolutely for me too because i'm somebody who can easily get steamrolled at a table like i'm definitely the kind of person who will get quieter and quieter and it's cool to see the book so aggressively standing up for players like that and making sure they have space and you know, even in the in the ownership section, it says a question comes up about, you know, the footwear and you you own it. So you answer first and you get the last say. And it's totally OK for you to ask other players for ideas, but don't let them walk all over you. Don't do it. Yeah. You you have the final say, <laughs> you know, you own footwear. Be yourself. Take it. Live your dream. Like it's it's aggressive. Yeah. And I mean. I think it speaks to the fact also that like the gap between me playing my first ever role-playing game and then writing Questlandia was maybe a gap of like a year or two. Yeah, it was fast. I think I like played my first role-playing game in 2012 and mm -hmm. then Questlandia came or 2011. Yeah. And I hadn't played role-playing games for a long time. I played a bunch when I was like in high school and then had a big gap where I thought it was going to be an actuary. <laughs> dark timeline and then you know circled back <laughs> to the lucrative job of independent game designer mm -hmm. role-playing game designer yes. specifically i just did the statistical analysis and it, it turns out <laughs> this is the best possible profession <laughs> well it's funny that you talk about i mean i think of you as kind of a quiet person but when you've told me stories also about playing games as a youth you seemed like kind of a manipulative player. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what stories you made. Really? <laughs> no. So didn't you bribe GMs? As no, like I, I received a bribe. <laughs> I was manipulated. Oh, okay. So you were just, you were a pliant GM. It was, I was, it was consensual, you know. He, it, that, that was all the way back in elementary school. He wanted to give me a dollar and I was fine giving him hundreds of gold in return. It's... <laughs> <laughs> maybe that should be a rule in questlandia yeah a corruption rule oh yeah like an well i mean we're talking about metaplot and like things you can do at the table as you so i think bribing the you know the facilitator is definitely one of them that's right citizens united into this game <laughs> <laughs> i got a spicy dollar for you <laughs> so what about for you was there anything that surprised you when you were looking back 
I mean, I, I don't want to be too hard on my past self. Like, it's a promise that I've made to myself as a part of redesigning Questlandia and also redesigning it so publicly is, like, I, I just, I don't want to bully past me. But reading through, like, opening up and one of the first lines is, like, we'll start by establishing a sense of place. And then the things that come after it make, are in no way connected to establishing a sense of place. Like, that surprised me. You caught me a little off guard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> so things are, I mean, things are a little messier than I remembered. I think that also at the time, you know, I really wanted to make a role playing game for people like me who were brand new to role playing games. But being brand new to role playing games, I don't know if I really had the capacity to make a clean, well designed, streamlined role playing game. So I look back at it and like it's just it it has a lot of clunk and crunch in places where I don't think it's necessary or where you'd expect it. You know, looking back and seeing the because in the original Questlandia, there's a side by side like every left hand page is a transcript of an actual play of the game that is edited to match the rules that are being taught on the facing page. We thought that was such a cool idea. It, I still think it legitimately is. It's really hard to read, though. Well, I, it's I, cool. Yeah. I think mm. it's really helpful to be able to glance over and see people actually playing out what's being described. But it's hard to look at, for me, because it's like traumatic how much work that was. <laughs> it was so much work. And I think that that was the first ever time we used, used InDesign, too. I mean, it's, it is actually... It was an incredible feat of layout because it looks really simple, but we were matching the actual play, a complete actual play text to the part where those rules come up in the game throughout the entire actual play. That's really impressive. It's one of those things where it's like your first project, you don't know how hard things are going to (laughs) be. You just decide what seems cool and you take it on. And I'm amazed that we carried through with it. If, if you have played the first one and you want to let us know what you think about that layout, please do, because people are really divided on it, and I'm really divided on it. Sounds like you love it. I don't know if I'd do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back over the original Questlandia, what elements from world building do we like? I think the features and norms part of the world building, that part that we said doesn't have much guidance and just sort of throws you in and says, come up with stuff works eerily well it's almost upsetting how well it works in my experience because it's a little bit like a like why do we even make rules <laughs> if this works <laughs> i guess we could have just ended there i right then play the game it's gonna be so good and i think this is in this happens in role-playing games more than any other kind of game It's an example of how soft a rule can be, how how light-handed you can be, and just sort of giving a a gentle push and relying on the culture at the table, the kind of players you have, to take that and run with it, to just be people. I think the kind of people who sit down to play this game are great at just bouncing off each other and being imaginative, being creative, and coming up with something crazy and original for their kingdom. Yeah, I I feel like it starts to, 
connect with the type of person who wants to go really deep with world building without putting too fine a point on it. And I don't know, there's like some formula there that I think we did successfully in this little one-shot game. And I really hope that we can recreate it because I've seen world building games or, or like world building toolkits get so mired into like, in like arguing about the the way a certain political system works. And I want players to be excited to talk about the, you know, family trees of the tree kingdom Ishtia, but not make anybody feel bad for deciding to not go so deep. I don't, I don't know. I don't, there's, there's like something there that I think is working and I don't know how to recreate it or what it is. I think there's a lot of subtle rules in that section that, you know, they're so subtle, you hardly realize that you just put a rule into it. One of those is the character sheet itself has little boxes for each of the features and norms. Those boxes are pretty small. You can't fit more than like a single sentence if you're writing cramped in there. That's a big deal. Those boxes are kind of made to be filled with a few words. So that naturally pushes you to keep your suggestion short and sweet. So you're just like neuro implants, 50 genders, cat ears, mountains. And to prevent that, there's rules about <laughs> about taking turns. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, to prevent me. Yeah. Well, presumably I would not have come up with all of those, but you know, we've already come up with them. We've taken turns. But that is the most rigid rule of that section. Yeah. It's like come up with this stuff, but you can't say an extra thing until everybody said as much as you have. Yeah, I'm not just like freestyling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good game too. It requires Neuro Hannah to be at the table. 50 genders, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have taking turns, you have short little things that you have to input, and then it goes into some detail about how you're allowed to build off of each other's suggestions. It well, it says do that. It says if they say built on if they say that the society's on mountains, you say, okay, and the rulers live on top of the mountains. And their head machinery is misfiring constantly. But it works for them. People <laughs> like it. They're exciting. <laughs> but that's a big deal because I think if that rule wasn't there, people would feel naturally like, okay, we have eight boxes. We have to come up with eight things. You already mentioned the misfiring, so I should come up with something about, you know, the river systems. And giving permission to bounce off each other and talk about it and expand on what's exciting works. I think it changes the flow of the conversation. So anyway, that rule, it still feels like there's something there for me to mine, like to figure out why that works as well as it does. Also, if you've played Questlandia and that part worked really poorly for you, <laughs> let me know because <laughs> I could round out my opinion of it a little better. You mean the coming up with features and norms? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just write me an angry, angry letter. <laughs> Freestyle. <laughs> that's Questlandia's world building in a nutshell. In a big nutshell. That's pretty much the whole thing. So what do we want to do for Questlandia 2? One thing with the world building that I think is kind of tricky, and I think I already kind of expressed this, is that I want to see less and more at the same time. Like, I want it to be less front-loaded, but deeper. And I want people to go deep and rich with that creation, 
you know, I want people to be able to talk about like the value of bread in the society without getting derailed for an hour about exactly how much bread costs and what the currency conversion is between U.S. dollars and plishka boodles. The systems that you're using to generate the world, ideally for me in Questlandia 2, those systems would fit the players at the table. So if it's a whole bunch of actuaries, then sure, <laughs> statistical analysis of this society is, is it's great. Everybody's into it. It would fit the players at the table, and it would also fit the world you're exploring. So an example of that is the, like we have a syllable list in the original Quislandia. That's going to fit some worlds and not others. For some, it'll be a jarring out of place. Like we just, it's just not the kind of world we're playing historical London in our game. And we don't, yeah, we don't need We don't need bookangles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the systems should be modular. They should be there when they fit the players, when they fit the world when they're going to be the most useful and just integrate. I think that a big thing in designing this next version is how to make that world building feel really rich, but to like distribute it throughout play instead of front loading it. Because I want people to be dropped into play as soon as possible, but while also feeling like they've been, been given enough like grounding to feel like they know what this world looks like. Everything that you provide in the game, you know, it gives new options, but it also closes off options. It adds some constraints to the world because when a tool is available and the game asks you to use it, it's saying, don't do it whatever way you would otherwise. So in the original Quizlandia, you know, we have our characters and it gives a chart of what kind of characters they are, where they come from. And it'll mention things like a king or ruler or a peasant. A holy person, a messenger. A magician, a hero. That gives a certain color to the game of what kinds of people you're playing with, who you meet. And because these are linked to random draws of a deck, you're extremely unlikely to have a game where it's just kings or just peasants or people of a similar class. You almost always have a wide range of social power in the characters you're playing with. Have you done the math yet for what it would look like to play play a game as all kings? I, you're tempting me. All right, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> can you promise me that we'll do that after the podcast? We yeah. can share it. A yeah. game of all kings. A game of Many kings. Many kings. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Kinglandia. Ooh, possible title for the sequel. Right <laughs> so... That system, you know, it gives a certain color to the worlds and it makes it so a whole bunch of kinds of worlds just don't happen. It's a constraint. You're not going to have an egalitarian, everybody is on the same level kind of society playing by Questlandia's rules. Yeah, unless you have worked to establish a very specific set of features and norms that supports like, I was a king in this past iteration of our society, but now we've, you know established that rulers walk among the people and people are rulers and yeah you'll have to be working against the game to make that work it's possible and i mean like we talked about in the first episode i think that we were setting up constraints that explored some of the things that we were interested in seeing at the time 
and maybe we're interested in seeing now, like games that heavily focus on social class and like systemic collapse. And it's not that we want to eliminate those. Like there's still some some themes that feel like they're central to the entire idea of Questlandia. I still want it to be about collapse. But it would be nice to have some systems that give more flexibility within that. So as we're thinking about this new version of Questlandia, we're going to be thinking a lot about media that's inspired us and what types of worlds we want to emulate, because that'll help us redesign this system. The original Questlandia is already good at emulating some kinds of stories that are out there anyway. Like we often will talk about it being like a never-ending story kind of game. Yeah, one one theme that I've seen is that it does really well with like environmentalist fantasy. So you get Nausicaa and you get Fern Gully. What else is environment? I mean, I guess a lot of Miyazaki type of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Avatar The Last Airbender. It can tell that kind of story already pretty well. Yeah, and, and uh, people have said before, like Attack on Titan where you have, you know, you can you can identify how it maps to the troubles in the society. You have the external threat of the Titans. You have internal conflict escalating amongst the different social classes. Yeah, it's a good map. It's a good match. And then, I mean, one thing that we're also going to be doing is basically just looking at some of our favorite things. <laughs> like, this is one of my favorite movies. Is this like Questlandia? Do we want it to be more like Questlandia? One example that I had mentioned was The Last Unicorn, which has been one of my favorite forever movies. And it feels like there are some parts that map. I mean, you have this threat of the last unicorn, of unicorns dying and that, you know, creating these forests that are no longer like these sanctified spaces. But it feels like Last Unicorn much goes much deeper in terms of a character study. And they're, like, really memorable characters. And I don't know if Questlandia has succeeded in doing that yet. I've been thinking about mm, games like Psychonauts, where you have a very sort of mentally focused psychological exploration. You have a more surreal setting that's built around, you know, thoughts and, like, a dreamscape rather than a more grounded reality. I love that kind of storytelling. Right now, Questlandia doesn't really support it, but I'd like Questlandia 2 to be able to give you these more disjointed and surreal worlds. And, you know, mentioning Psychonauts, it made me think about things that video games do and the weird ways that role-playing games sort of try to emulate those or don't, or maybe it's video games emulate, like in a game like Psychonauts or like we're playing the new Tomb Raider right now, like there's so much shit you can get in the world. Like you can pick the ground and get these psychic arrowheads. You can pick the ground in Tomb Raider and get XP. Mm -hmm. And that stuff in role-playing games tends to be really like weird and tacked on and like, um, I don't know, what, there's a word for when you're just trying to get to be the strongest and the best and get all the loot. Like metagamey? Yeah, metagamey. Also when you're trying to max out the thing. I don't know, I don't... Oh, yeah. min-maxy. Thank That's you. what you're yes. thinking, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like we had made a game years ago when we ran a youth program that used a risk board but like turned it into a role-playing game and one of the rules was kind of like if you came up with an object 
you could use it in the world and it became a piece of clothing or it became a weapon. And then it had like really loose rules attached to it. And so you had like these kids that we played with that just had these piles of shit in front of them. <laughs> yeah. Like they had their cloak of invisibility and they had their arrowhead finder and their dream catcher. Um, and I feel like that would be something kind of cool and weird to do in the new Questlandia. Yeah. And it kind of works maybe with ownership. It really could. Ownership could go back down to a pretty, the, the, the normal meaning of the term. <laughs> like, like, you I own this hat. This is my special hat. I have the first and final say about this <laughs> my hat. My shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I can ask other players for input about my hat, but I won't let them walk all over me. It's my hat. <laughs> we're going to be talking a lot about inspirations and things we're thinking about, so I'm not going to go too deep right now, but I'm just going to name like things like Hunter Hunter, which is something we watched recently that gave us some ideas over the Garden Wall, which is an amazing short animation uh, series that I recommend everybody watch that gave us some ideas. The Goblin Emperor for some royal shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great book that delves really into like the political part of a society. Mm -hmm. um, Night on the Galactic Railroad, which is this really surreal Japanese animation. Yeah, if we could do a game that could repli replicate that kind of feeling, well, that would be amazing. <laughs> so if we make the tools to support all these different kinds of worlds, how do players decide when to use one of them? And how do they choose which one to use? And how much work will it take to learn the mechanics of each one of these different systems? Find out in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is what our playtests are going to be all about. Yeah. We're going to, basically the answer is, dunno, going to write something that seems like it might work and just throw it down there and start playing. Yeah, we're, I mean, as we're playtesting over the next few months, we're going to have to find that slider between come up with some features and norms and here are 50 different possible tables for how to create everything from a language to botanical classifications to sex positions in your society. We know that we want to integrate the journals that you're making uh, as you explore worlds, that those somehow are used to generate future worlds, which gives a whole new layer of meaning to the worlds that you've explored. We want to gradually increase the options available to players. So in the beginning, you don't have access to all whatever. There are 50 different tools for generating the world. You have access to one or two, and it builds as you play. So that's going to be exciting. And I think that's something that we're going to be starting to do pretty soon yeah this is going to be now. i mean i guess we're doing it like this is this is part of the work yeah we're we're just about at the point where we're going to be scheduling play tests and obviously there is nothing to play test yet but scheduling comes first actually <laughs> for us it does yes <laughs> we always schedule the play test before doing the work yes and then do the work in a panicked frenzy so that is on tap so finally, what is the end goal of all of this world building? I'm hoping that if we do this right, you should feel just like the junk poets in the world, that you better understand how societies struggle and fail, and you have some ideas for how things could be better. And we also want players to feel really proud of and attached to the worlds they've created. I mean... It was the biggest piece of feedback that we've gotten for Questlandia 1, which is that people really did 
like these worlds and they just felt like they didn't get enough time in them. So we want that to really, really feel meaningful. And, you know, I think that anytime you manage to actually get together with friends and play a role-playing game, that's an achievement and it's worth remembering. So I'm excited to have journals of the worlds that you've created as also just a, you know, a way to remember those moments, those good evenings that you spent. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So that's our mission statement for world building. There's a lot to take on. I mean, our mission is let's make 50 systems to accommodate every kind of world. But that's what we're going to do. Yep. Well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) For the next episode, we're going to be talking about plum bobs. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Just plum bobs. We're going to be talking about all the tools that you use at the table. Pencils, dice, and maybe some weirder stuff to accommodate the weirder options that this game will give you. And if you don't know what a plum bob is, which I did not up until about a few months ago, tune in next time. (laughs) We'll be telling you all about plum bobs. As we wrap up this episode, we wanted to give a moment for your thoughts and questions. People have been emailing us and tweeting to us with some really amazing feedback, and we just wanted to acknowledge the awesome things that you're saying and how you're contributing to this process. Um, So in our last episode, we talked about Metaplot, and I was really worried that we'd leave people behind and it would just be really tangled and confusing um, because some of the things we talked about were a little intangible, but we got really good feedback from you and we got some awesome emails. So we wanted to share some of that and to thank you for being a part of this design process with us. Overall, the feedback we got was that, well, people were excited about the junk poets. They were, they shared our excitement and our concerns about whether it could be gracefully integrated and not be a confusing mess to have to think about your characters on this many levels. We got some great thoughts via email about the junk poets as characters and how to embody those characters at this like meta level without getting, without forgetting about the characters that you've created in these Questlandia worlds. People talked about, you know, discovering who the junk poets were over time instead of front loading that. And that makes a lot of sense and really matches with some of the stuff that we're talking about. Somebody also suggested that we play through Mist. (laughs) <laughs> which is right on yeah we yeah. Do. it's like a big inspiration for this game so thank you you're you're in we're having synchronicity is that the word it is yes. yeah we keep coming back to it because i mean i'm thinking about mist a lot because those journals of the worlds that the author has created are one of my favorite memories of mist flipping through and seeing what notes he took about the culture and diagrams he wrote so Mist is a huge inspiration for this game. Uh, the same person who recommended we play through Mist also recommended the mechanisms, uh, who I haven't had a chance to check out yet, but they sound awesome. They were described to us as a rock opera concept album band thing, which sounds <laughs> right up my alley. Um, and each album is a steampunk or sci-fi reimagining of classic Western European myths. Their favorite being Ulysses Dies at Dawn. And they talked about this band, the mechanisms, having like self-inserts in each album as immortal plane-traveling voyeurs. That sounds like so much what we're talking about. I That's know. crazy. So if anybody listening to this wants to race us to, <laughs> to it just experience sounds so this. cool. <laughs> um, so that sounds awesome. And thank you again for like just being right, right in our brains. Mm-hmm. 
It's spooky, but appreciated. Yeah. One listener asked about Noirlandia in particular and how it fits into the arc of evolving Questlandia and taking it to the next level. And that's definitely something we're going to be addressing uh, more and more as we go on, because we did try to address the problems with Questlandia and Norlandia and to, to make a new take on it. And we created new ones. We did create <laughs> new problems. Yeah. We're probably not going to have the, you know, murder mystery cork board in no, this one. No, I don't think so. Uh, it could be a system. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I um, and that same person also recommended some 80s new age stuff a little bit sheepishly, but I was excited to check out, um, they said, what did they say? Seth Speaks or Robert Monroe's book, Ultimate Journey or Olaf Stapledon's Star Maker. So that recommendation was made like with the caveat that like, oh, it's a little weird. But I mean, we're going to you're going to hear all about plum bobs in the next episode. So things are going to get really weird. Yeah, that's 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 going to happen. <laughs> it's inevitable. <laughs> so thank you for those recommendations. And we'll try to find a place where we can like, you know, keep a log of some of these suggestions online. Mm -hmm. A friend of ours named Rob on Twitter. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> asked why we're calling this the second edition and not a whole new name or a full-on sequel. We're, we're calling it second edition by accident. Yeah. <laughs> it's not actually what we want to call it, but I just keep accidentally saying it. Yeah, because we're definitely doing more than like addressing the typos. We're, yeah. This is a new game. <laughs> uh, but we do want to keep the name Questlandia, which is something that the two of us have argued about a little bit. It's a challenge to both express how similar it is and how different it'll be. Uh, Questlandia, calling it Questlandia again Definitely makes it sound Ooh, more Questlandia similar. Oh, Questlandia again. That should Questlandia just be the name. Yeah. next. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so those were some of your thoughts and questions from our last episode. If you have thoughts and questions about world building, we would love to hear them. You can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or even better, follow us and tweet to us at designdocpod on Twitter. If you'd like to follow us personally on Twitter, you can follow me at adronnovel. And you can find me at Han Bandit. The Design Doc intro outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. So thank you, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit OneShotPodcast.com, where you'll find other great shows like Backstory. Backstory is an ongoing series of interviews with some of the most compelling voices in the RPG and LARP community. Designers, organizers, scholars, and other fascinating folks join host Alex Roberts for a deep dive into their current projects and visions for the future of role-playing. And if you like what we're doing here, why not hop over to Design Doc on iTunes and leave us a review? I think we have one so far. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, yay. <laughs> so it'll help more people find the show and it will fill us with de determination. determination. We should probably not do that for any more episodes. No. <laughs> so thank you for listening. We will see you soon, heroes.